check, check. One, two, check. Mic's on. From the world of education to you, my name is Dr. A. Our show is all about finding your voice by connecting our community through collaboration. Welcome back to another edition of Mike's On. This is episode 60, and we don't have anything big plan to celebrate other than we are going to just do a little excerpt out of a book that I talked about last week and uh, things to know. And it is called the broken heart of America by Walter Johnson. Uh, it is St. Louis and the violent history of the United States. So we're going to just going to go through maybe chapter one and see what it's like, see what you think. And, and hopefully we can uh, turn you in and on to uh, this new read. So here's chapter one. However, our present interests may restrain us within our own limits. It is impossible not to look forward to distant times when our rapid multiplication will expand itself beyond those limits and cover the whole northern, if not the southern, continent with a people speaking the same language, governed in similar forms, and by similar laws. Nor can we contemplate with satisfaction either blot or mixture on that surface. That is a quote from Thomas Jefferson to James Monroe. November 24th, 1801. It is a commonplace today to refer to St. Louis as the gateway to the West. But there was a time when the land that sits today in the shadow of the gateway arch was neither part of the West, nor just east of the West, nor the gateway to anything. It was just the world, indeed the center of the world. Of course, it was not St. Louis then either, but the ancient city of Cahokia the metropolis of the Mississippian mound builders and the largest city in North America during the 11th century. Cahokia was in what is known today as the American Bottom, on the east side of the river with satellites near what is today East St. Louis and across the river on the west side in St. Louis, known in the 19th century as the Mound City. Over the course of the 19th century, many of the mounds for which the city was known were deliberately leveled so that streets could pass through or bucketed out and used as backfill to support the rising foundation of the growing city. As many as 45 mounds were dismantled in East St. Louis and another 25 or so in St. Louis in the years before the Civil War. Today, only one mound remains in the city of St. Louis. Across the river, around the center of the once great city of Okohokia, about 50 of the original approximately 120 mounds some of them once 40 or 50 feet high and hundreds of feet across remain. Some of them rise out of the floodplain of the Mississippi River, an uncanny echo of their ancient grandeur. And some are so worn away by erosion and foot traffic as to seem only small bumps in the otherwise level bottomland. They stand today as a weary reminder of the history before the empire that unfolded from St. Louis over the course of the 19th century. Beginning in the century's first decade with the upriver journey of Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, an initial reconnaissance mission for a set of increasingly greedy and increasingly deadly military and economic forays launched from St. Louis. At its peak, Cahokia had a population of around 10,000, larger than London at the same time, and a hinterland almost 50 miles in radius populated with another 20,000 or 30,000 people. It was connected by networks of travel and trade northward to present-day Minnesota and Wisconsin, 
and southward to Louisiana, and possibly beyond to Mexico and Central America. The city consisted of as many as 1,500 structures, including 100 earthen monuments spread over 3,200 acres. Some speculate that it grew suddenly over the course of several years as a sacred site spurred by the deep space detonation of a supernova that brightened the skies around the globe in 1054. Cahokia was apparently laid out in advance of being inhabited. At its center was a massive plaza, 1,600 by 900 feet, about six times the size of Red Square in Moscow. Headed by the largest of the mounds, the so-called Monk's Mound, about 100 feet high and almost 900 feet at the base, as broad as the Pyramid at Giza and wider than the Pyramid of the Sun at Teotihuacan in Mexico. Recent archaeological work suggests that the mounds were built out of blocks of cut sod, laid in alternating bands of light and dark, and pounded firmly beneath the feet of the builders. Most of the mounds were leveled at the summit. Topped with buildings, they provided a platform for celestial observations. The entire city was laid out in observation of the movement of the sun, the moon, and the stars, and for sacred rituals. Cahokia seems to have been the site of tremendous festivals. One, archaeologists estimate, involved the simultaneous butchering and preparation of almost 4,000 deer. The residents of the city lived in thousands of densely clustered thatch-roofed houses. Their floors dug down into the earth to keep them cooler in the summer. They made small clay sculptures and copper jewelry and chiseled arrowheads and knives out of river rocks. And then, for reasons that are lost to history, the mound builders seemed to have walked away. Perhaps they had overhunted or overplanted their hinterland. Maybe the city was riven by political conflict or social unrest. Maybe they received the same type of celestial message that had caused them to move to Cahokia in the first place. Archaeologists speculate that, as the rulers of Cahokia gradually lost authority over their hinterland, their civilization dissolved into a welter of smaller politics and internecine wars. By around 1350, Cahokia was abandoned. The house is gone, and the mounds covered with grass, some of the largest falling in on themselves. The descendants of Cahokia spread across the plains and along the rivers, where they became the Arikara, the Hidatsa, and the Mandan, whom Lewis and Clark encountered on their way up the Missouri. For hundreds of years, the remains of what was once the largest city on the continent must have registered as only a distant reminder, or even an eerie anachronism, to the Indian hunters and traders who passed through the American bottom. In February 1764, a small company of armed speculators led by Auguste Chouteau landed their boats on the west bank of the Mississippi River across from Cahokia and began to build a fort. They were employees of Pierre Laclede, a New Orleans trader, and they had traveled more than 1,200 miles upriver to set up a trading post near the confluence of the Mississippi and the Missouri, the first outpost in what became an empire and what became the West. They came to see the mounds around them as relics of an ancient civilization, one prior to that of the actual Indians in whose midst they had set and they concluded that the Indians, too, were interlopers, strangers in a strange land, and colonizers like themselves. They turned the mounds into a self-serving justification for empire. When Napoleon, sitting over 4,000 miles away in Paris, sold the stake originally claimed by Chateau to Thomas Jefferson in 1803, he did so without regard for the vast majority of the existing inhabitants of the Louisiana Territory. The nations of the Osage, the Mandan, the Arikara, the Sioux, 
and the Quapaw. Jefferson, of course, knew better. He was a student of Indians and of empire. He imagined the Louisiana Purchase as an empire for liberty, as a huge deposit of landed wealth upon which the future of white freedom might be based. But he did not think of the territory as empty. He knew that the Indians would have to be dealt with. In 1804, he sent Meriwether Lewis and William Clark to make a survey of the practical challenges and possibilities of empire building in the West, to search out the long-rumored Northwest Passage to the Pacific, catalog the flora and the fauna, and to enumerate the Indians, announce to them the subordination of their nations to the United States of America, and gauge the economic potential of their lands. The expedition was carried out by a military reconnaissance force called the Corps of Discovery, a name that paradoxically and ideologically erased the people upon whose land they would be traveling, and upon whose hospitality and knowledge they would depend, as if they were the first people to navigate the rivers and walk the paths about which they would learn from Indians. They left from St. Louis, which was at that time little more than an imperial outpost, a handful of buildings and warehouses along the riverbank with a population of around 1,200 people, most of whom were connected in one way or another with the fur trade. An 1805 visitor to the city referred to it as Huntonment St. Louis, an isolated, surrounded, embattled outpost on the verge of a menacing future. The white men who carried the American flag and the news of conquest up the Missouri River knew better than even Jefferson that, that the lands through which they traveled were not simply sitting there like so much empty space on a map waiting to be discovered. They were soldiers and frontier traders, men who were accustomed to seeing the land over which they traveled as contested ground as a patchwork of claims and counterclaims and a place thick with possible allies and potential enemies. More than as explorers, we should see them as special forces, a military reconnaissance operation operating well beyond the line of effective U.S. control, empowered to make friends among the Indians wherever they could find them, but enjoined always to remember that they were operating in hostile territory. Meriwether Lewis was born in 1774 to a settler family in Georgia in the midst of a long-running, medium-intensity war with the Cherokee. As a young man, he moved to Virginia, where he became a leader in the new state's militia, a force created to maintain sovereign order among the slaves, the Indians, and even insurrectionary whites, and where he caught the attention of Thomas Jefferson. After the Corps of Discovery returned to St. Louis in 1806, Jefferson appointed Lewis military governor of the Louisiana Territory, but plagued by drink, the famous explorer was dead by 1809, shot to death in a Tennessee roadhouse, whether or not by his own hand, no one has ever finally established. Born in Virginia in 1770, William Clark was the younger brother of the Revolutionary War hero and famous Indian killer George Rogers Clark. He, too, was a Jefferson protege. Though not as fluent a writer as Lewis, he was a talented cartographer. Everywhere he stopped during his travels across the western half of the North American continent, at night in campsites on the banks of the Missouri, during the snowed-in winter of 1804 at Fort Mandan, near the 19th-century Indian villages of Miditaka and Ruptar and present-day Bismarck, North Dakota. Over the course of the miserable, starving, icy winter that followed at Fort Clatsop near the Pacific coast, Clark recorded the information and observations he would use to entirely recast the geographic knowledge of the day, knowledge in the service of empire. William Clark's map was arguably the most important and most enduring artifact of the Corps of Discovery's reconnaissance mission. It was both imperial in its ambition to codify and control and ambivalent in its incompleteness and dependence upon Indian knowledge. 
It was a map of imperial ambition produced by a man who would not have survived his first winter, still less the other winners of the journey, without the help of the Indians over whom the President of the United States would soon give him sovereign dominion. For many years to come, and in many places, that dominion would be nothing more than science fiction waiting to be redeemed in blood. Over the next three decades, Clark would preside over several interlinked dimensions of the U.S. imperial and Indian policy. The removal of most of the Indians who remained on the eastern side of the Mississippi River at the time of the Louisiana Purchase. The negotiation of removal treaties with the Indians of Missouri, among whom were some of his closest allies in the War of 1812 and surrounding territories, and the military reconnaissance, imperial regulation, and eventual invasion of the Missouri Valley. Apart from Andrew Jackson, it would be hard to argue that any white man had a greater influence on the U.S. Indian policy in the first half of the 19th century than William Clark. As well as pen and ink, the men of the Corps of Discovery carried with them 15 rifles issued by the U.S. Army, several sidearms of their own, and a rare repeating rifle that belonged to Lewis and could fire as many as 20 shots in succession without reloading. They also had a cannon mounted on a swivel on the bow of one of their boats and two large smoothboard guns on the others. As they traveled upriver in the fall of 1804, they failed to observe frontier protocol by paying a toll to pass through Lakota territory near the Big Bend of the Missouri. When they were waylaid by the Indians, Lewis and Clark refused to negotiate, took the Lakota headman Black Buffalo hostage, and held him until they had passed out of Lakota territory. The Lakota, Clark recorded in his journal, were the vilest miscreants of the savage race and the pirates of the Missouri, an assessment that proved to be both foundational to the subsequent history of white settlers' attitudes towards the Lakota and monumentally ironic in light of the kidnapping and the events of the next two centuries. The Corps of Discovery spent its first winter on the Missouri at Fort Mandan, later named Fort Clark, a small stockade built near Mandan villages where as many as 1,500 people lived within and outside the walls. For the Mandans, the arrival of the Corps of Discovery was a peculiar if not unprecedented event. The Mandans had a history of trade with Europeans that dated to the 17th century. Their most recent and frequent contact was with British traders who traveled down from Hudson's Bay. As discordant as the assertion of white sovereignty may have seemed when delivered by a ragtag band of 50 men to a powerful settlement with four or 500 soldiers, the Mandans were especially puzzled and irritated by the Americans' refusal to trade with them. Indian diplomacy on the Great Plains depended upon an ethos of open-handed generosity and reciprocity. The hospitality shown by the Mandans was neither naive nor altruistic. It was their half of a relationship of the exchange portended. They assumed by the expedition's heavy-laden keelboat. But the white men of Fort Mandan seemed usually stingy. They were obsessed with storing up their goods for other winters and other Indians farther up the river. When they tried to overawe the Indians by firing off their cannon, they seemed to prefer throwing their ammunition away idly rather than sparing a shot of it to a poor Mandan. Only when the expedition's blacksmith finished setting up shop did the Corps of Discovery have something to give in return. If we eat, you shall eat. The Mandan leader Sheheki promised the whites. For the Mandans, the arrival of Lewis and Clark was an odd but by no means unprecedented event. They were familiar with white men and commercial prospectors, especially fur traders. Their main concerns about the future involved their relations with their Indian neighbors, especially the Arikara to the south and the Sioux to the west. Lewis and Clark, by contrast, believed that they were on a path-breaking mission and had limitless confidence in their ability to find and claim new territory, even believing that they were destined 
reason to do so. But they also knew that by the time they had reached the Mandan villages, they had also reached the outer limits of their maps. There were European trappers and traders who lived in and traveled the Missouri River Valley but they navigated according to memory and word of mouth. Based on the information they gleaned from these sources and on their incomplete and speculative maps, some of which were indeed more fanciful than speculative, Lewis and Clark had set out for the Pacific, working on the hypothesis that the western half of the continent was a straight-up mirror image of the world east of the Mississippi. Over the course of the winter, the Mandans and their visitors provided Lewis and Clark with the maps that would guide the Corps of Discovery to the front range of the Rockies and beyond. They were initially drawn out on the packed dirt floor of Mandan Lodges and then translated into notes and maps in Clark's journals. When the American Expeditionary Force set out for the Pacific in the spring of 1805, the landmarks they sought and the decisions they made were based altogether, in Lewis's words, on Indian information. Obtained on this subject in the course of the winter from a number of individuals, questioned separately and at different times. After the winter of 1804, every single critical decision Lewis and Clark made was based upon what they had learned from Indians. After spring had turned to summer, months later, and hundreds of miles upriver, Lewis and Clark faced what the historians have identified as the defining moment in the expedition. At a seeming fork in the Missouri River, a difference of opinion about which way to proceed threatened to grow into a violent conflict between the expedition's leaders and their men a backcountry mutiny that would surely have cost Lewis and Clark their lives. The embattled officers resolved the argument and settled on the South Fork only after sending out an exploratory party in search of the landscape they had been told by the Mandans to expect. As Clark put it, the buffaloes and the Indians always have the best route. It was also at Fort Mandan in the winter of 1804-1805 that Lewis and Clark met Sacagawea. Soon after the Corps discovery landed at the Mandan villages, a French fur trader named Toussaint Charbonneau and two Indian women arrived for the winter. No one knows when or how exactly Charbonneau had met either the women with whom he traveled and whom he called his wives, but Clark believed that their relationship with him was something more akin to enslavement than marriage. Having grown up Shoshone in present-day Idaho, the women had been captured and enslaved by the Hidatsa, who lived on the Great Plains, upriver from the Mandans, toward the mountains. Women like Sacagawea and Otter Woman were trafficked, like furs, beads, horses, and guns, among European traders and those who trucked with them. Because property on the plains was passed matrilineally from generation to generation, marrying, buying, taking, raping, Indian women was a primary mode of both sexual and capital accumulation for Europeans. What Lewis and Clark took from Sacagawea was knowledge. This appropriation, too, was in accordance with the standard operating procedures of Indian slavery on the plains, where far-flung geographies of trade and the diversity of languages made those who could point the way across the landscape and translate among its inhabitants. Indeed, it was in anticipation of their need for translators that Lewis and Clark engaged Charbonneau, who spoke Hidatsa, and his Shoshone wives. Otter Woman, who was seven months pregnant when the expeditionary force set out in the spring of 1805, stayed with the Mandans. Sacagawea went along with Charbonneau, carrying with her the couple's two-month-old son, whom they had christened Jean-Baptiste. Sacagawea's story bears repeating. It is as amazing as it is familiar. Carrying her son, she walked overland with William Clark and taught him about the flora and fauna of the Missouri Valley. She plunged into the freezing Missouri to rescue the expedition's journals and maps when one of the expedition's pirogues overturned on launching. Charbonneau, 
who could not swim, had to be dragged out of the water along with the baggage. She recognized the meadow where she had been captured, pointed the way to the Shoshone, and then astonished the Corps of Discovery as she rushed forward to embrace the leader of the Shoshone party, who had ridden out to meet the white travelers. He was, they soon learned, her brother. And shortly before the expedition started eastward to return to St. Louis, she insisted on riding out from the winter camping ground at Fort Clatsop so that she could see the Pacific Ocean with her own eyes. And yet, alongside the anything you can do I can do better terms in which her story has been assimilated into the mainstream of American history Sacagawea's years with the Corps of Discovery also provide a set of data points that convey the unstable hierarchies and violent intimacies that shaped life between the borders of worlds in August 1805 Sacagawea was beaten in camp by her husband who was then publicly reprimanded by Clark Clark may have felt protective possessive even of Sacagawea whom he referred to as Janney his affection for Jean-Baptiste was openly proprietary. His habit of calling the boy Pompey reflected not only the affection of a pet name, but also southern slaveholders' habit of amusing themselves by bestowing names drawn from the classical world upon their property. By the time the expedition returned to St. Louis, Clark wrote to Charbonneau and Sacagawea, asking them to send the little boy to live with him. Anxious expectations of seeing my little dancing boy Baptiste led Clark to promise Charbonneau a fully furnished farm, if only the woodsman would leave your little son Pomp with me. Jean-Baptiste was educated at Clark's expense after his parents returned to the Hadatsas in 1809. He graduated from what is today St. Louis University High School as a member of one of the first classes after its 1808 foundation. Historians know Sacagawea, this most famous of Indian women, mostly through the words and deeds of the men who controlled and exploited her and finally dispossessed her of both her property and her progeny. We'll go ahead and stop there for today. If you like this book, again, it is The Broken Heart of America, St. Louis and the Violent History of the United States. Thanks for joining us this week. Mike's off. Join us in the weeks to come as we learn and grow together.